All right, we are back. We have about, I don't know, 12 or so minutes left on the program. Let's talk about the weather. Well, at least a bit about the weather. Here in California, we are experiencing bizarrely cool and wet temperatures and precipitation. Article on this topic in the Sacramento Bee by Matt Weiser notes that California's chill is puzzling experts. It appears to be caused by a... uh, a major change in the Earth's jet stream. Apparently because the Arctic has been a lot warmer than usual this year, the jet stream was pushed far south, bringing cold air with it and repeated storms from Alaska to California. The article does note that one theory gaining traction in this is that climate change may in fact be to blame for some of this. Because it turns out it isn't just California. The article quotes Bill Patzer, a climatologist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, who said this is what I call global weirding. It's been a very strange year all over the planet. Okay, I'm commenting on this with Judah Cohen, an atmospheric scientist in Massachusetts, who argues that ice melt in the Arctic has produced more snowfall across Siberia, and all that snow has created a giant cold air mass that diverts the jet stream, contributing to the negative Arctic oscillation. Cohen successfully predicted this Cohen successfully predicted this winter's colder temperatures across the northern US but said the phenomenon influences weather on the east coast more than the west. Matt Weiser asks if uh, colder and snowy winters co- Matt Weiser suggests that colder and snowier winters caused by global warming uh, may seem counterintuitive but do make sense in context. By the way this cold uh, cold wet weather is contributing to this correspondence Worst allergy attack of the past 10 years. So I do apologize for my somewhat unpleasant nasally tones. I lament that this may yet be another consequence of global warming. And I do regret that now it's becoming personal. Would note too that earlier this week it marked uh, the anniversary of the assassination of Robert Kennedy, which took place in the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. For the 35th anniversary, Mr. McMillan and I traveled down for a, a discussion of, of that event, and actually we did get into the ambassador, although not to the, uh, the murder site. We referred to an article by Linda Deutsch in the Associated Press, reprinted in the Sacramento Bee, about Paul Schrade. Mr. Schrade, uh, who we met eight years ago, was also struck by one of the bullets that day, and he's convinced that more than one gun was involved. We don't have time to go into that today, but the evidence for that, we can tell you, is pretty compelling. Something we have not looked into very much was another article that was in the Sacramento Bee by David Willman. It was a special to the Bee, looking into what was behind the anthrax attacks of several years back. This isn't exactly news, but the anthrax used in those attacks appear to have originated in the United States' top-secret lab. That itself raises many questions, which I think the article does not answer completely. But uh, we would refer you to that piece by David Willman in the B. We talk about water issues a lot on this program because water is so essential to California politics. At least it's essential to California development, which itself drives our politics. We refer you to yet another article. This is by, one's by Loretta Kalb in the Sacramento Bee, noting that uh, the Folsom area is expanding and that water will be a key to that. But the development of some of the brown hills south of Highway 50, uh, south of Folsom, 
An area of about 3,500 acres is expected to be a $250 million proposition just from the water standpoint alone. Developers are looking at this area covetously, envisioning 10,000 homes and 72 million square feet of commercial office and retail space, as well as public school facilities. The cost to operate this water system would run as high as $15 million per year, supposedly to be financed by the water users through their monthly bills. The background on the story is interesting. In the 1990s, Sacramento County opposed the city of Folsom's bid to bring the land within its sphere of influence. And seven years ago, a grassroots ballot initiative to limit growth south of Highway 50 was disqualified from the ballot. But Measure W, which was drafted by city officials, did win voter approval. It required that a new water supply be secured for the area and that residents north of Highway 50 not be required to share in the costs of the infrastructure south of the freeway. We may have to bring in the good people from Friends of the River to sort this one out for us. We've been a little bit miffed at them for their efforts to bring water meters to Sacramento. A successful effort to do so, so that we can conserve water here in Sacramento and thus ship it south to places like Moreno Valley. Which, like Folsom, needs water to do its real estate development. Which I think is the great Ponzi scheme upon which this state economy runs. In fact, if someone out there, let's ask a third time among uh, our educated listeners, Mr. McMillan... If someone can explain to us how much of the California economy is derived from the ongoing real estate bubble, which dates back well over a century, we'd like to know. Because it looks to us like there's not that much more room at the inn. I mean, yes, you could put, uh, you know, population densities like in Japan and quadruple or quintuple the population of California. But do we want to live like they do in Japan? Especially since Japan has much better water resources than we do. We'll continue to follow this story. And for those of you intrigued by the Octomom case, and if you are, we kind of feel sorry for you, but it is worth noting that the Medical Board of California has gotten off its butt to revoke the license of Dr. Michael Kamrava. This is a rare outcome, and it did come more than two years after his patient Nadia Suleiman gave birth to octuplets. Apparently, there are no laws in the U.S. that prevent doctors from implanting multiple embryos and possibly producing another octomom-type case. But apparently, national guidelines have been tightened in the wake of the case to restrict how many embryos can be implanted. God help us if someone tries to break the record. One fertility expert who spoke in support of Dr. Kamrava during his licensing hearing said that Doctors followed the case closely but remain in a gray zone when it comes to navigating between patient wants and medical ethics. Yes, that's the same gray zone that allowed plastic surgeons to do what they did to Michael Jackson. Navigating that fine line between patient wants and medical ethics. And you know, we, we kind of hate to close on a Sarah Palin story. Because Sarah Palin to a public affairs radio program is kind of like fishing in a barrel for sportsmen. Worse in Palin's case, the better metaphor might be shooting wolves from helicopters. In the wake of presidential aspirant and former Alaska governor and Fox News correspondent Sarah Palin saying recently that <laughs> Paul Revere rode to warn the British... 
Well, the governor insisted that she, she, she was right. She claims that history is on her side when she said that Paul Revere's famous ride was intended to warn both British soldiers and his fellow colonists. When asked by Fox News' Chris Wallace that you realize that you messed up about Paul Revere, don't you? Palin answered, I didn't mess up about Paul Revere. Part of his ride was to warn the British that were already there that, hey, you're not going to succeed. You're not going to take American arms. You're not going to beat our own well-armed persons, individuals, private militias that we have. He did warn the British. This came about in the wake of her stating uh, on an East Court East Coast tour through Boston that Paul Revere, quote, warned the British that they weren't going to be taking away our arms by ringing those bells and making sure as he's riding his horse through town to send those warning shots and bells and that we're going to be sure that we're going to be free and that we're going to be armed. This reminds us of the uh, curious book titled I Love Paul Revere Whether He Rode or Not by Richard Schenkman. This was a new collection by, by the author who'd previously put out Legends, Lies, and Cherished Myths of American History. Schenkman's evaluation of, uh, of that statement about Paul Revere previously certainly has some bearing on Sarah Palin. They were made by President Warren G. Harding, probably the most incompetent man to sit in the Oval Office, at least until uh, George Bush got, he got in there in the year 2001. But back in 1923, President Harding said, Only a few days ago, an iconoclastic American said, There never was a ride by Paul Revere. That he started out with Colonel Dawes, an ancestor of the recent director of the budget, to give the warning to every Middlesex village and farm, but was arrested. So it was said by a British sentry and never made the ride. Suppose he did not. Suppose somebody made the ride and stirred the Minutemen and the colonies to fight the Battle of Lexington, which was the beginning of independence in the New Republic of America. I love the story of Paul Revere, whether he rode or not. Now, it's curious that Paul Revere did apparently set out with two other men to warn uh, a couple of uh, leaders of the revolution that the British regulars were coming to round them up. That would be Sam Adams and John Hancock. Evidently, he succeeded in doing that, by the way. But he was captured by a British patrol and was unable to alert the countryside to the fact that British regulars were coming. According to uh, Mr. Shankman's previous book, Legends and Lies and Cherished Myths of American History, Paul Revere rode into the hero's spotlight only in 1863 when Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's famous poem was published. This rescued Paul Revere from virtual obscurity. I gather that by all accounts he was the best silversmith in the new colonies, but not necessarily a revolutionary leader. Historians say that before that poem, many Americans were not even familiar with Paul Revere's name. In the early 19th century, not a single editor included Revere in any compendium of American worthies, and Paul Revere did not rate a mention in William Allen's comprehensive biographical dictionary, although there was room enough to list the accomplishments of several thousand other people. After the poem, however, Revere's stock rose dramatically. In fact, by the end of the 19th century, Paul Revere's reputation had improved so immensely that the daughters of the American Revolution turned his house in Boston into a museum. Notes Schenkman, his role in warning the of approaching redcoats has been exaggerated, thanks to Longfellow. 
Everyone thinks that Revere rode alone through the woods when the British started in on Lexington and Concord, although two others, William Dawes and Samuel Prescott, also made the trip. And of course, Revere did not even make it to Concord. After warning Lexington, he ran into a British patrol and was then captured. Now, as to Sarah Palin's assertion that he was also warning the British, quote-unquote, well, first of all, at that time, everybody considered themselves British. <laughs> Paul Revere did not say, the British are coming. Everyone thought of themselves as British. What he apparently said was, the regulars are coming. In other words, the troops. So anyway, Sarah Palin does not really know her history, and she's not a particularly articulate person, but there, there's something you do have to admire about someone who sticks by their guns when they're proven to be wrong, to state categorically that, to state categorically that no, everybody else has it wrong. I am right. Of course, standing on your own two feet may be worthy of a certain amount of uh, admiration, and it is also, on the other hand, nuts. Although for next week's show, we're going to try and dig up a quote from the book How to Lose Friends and Alienate People, which explain how, oh, sure, anybody can just admit they're wrong and apologize. But the person who stands up for himself when he knows he's wrong, that's the person with guts. Anyway, our, perf- our profuse thanks to Sam Keen, author of The Disappearing Spoon and Other True Tales of Madness, Love, and the History of the World from the Periodic Table of the Elements. It's a hell of a read, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Our thanks also to our good close pal, Mr. Will Durst. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm what's left of the voice of Douglas Everett, who hopefully will be doing better next week with fewer allergies in more sunshine. We will talk to you then.